You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hi, I'm Nicholas Sperling. This is a social justice podcast based off of a social justice coloring book. And today our topic is racism, and I'm joined by Toko Moyo. Toko, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Toko Moyo. Uh wear lots of different hats and I guess we'll kind of get into maybe what some of those different hats are but for now I'm Toko Moyo. All right well thank you for joining me I'm really excited for this conversation and uh, I want to start as we do with basically all of our episodes with discussing what the issue is sort of from a very broad perspective. So what would what do you think of or, or what um, would you think racism is? Mm. Yeah, I mean, my head goes to the definition, but my uh, the uh, the first kind of initial response that I had was um, it's an experience, and so I guess if we look at the the definition, it's looking at how people can um, discriminate against different groups of people based on uh, their race, and uh, for me, it's 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 that experience of discrimination. Um, yeah, I, I think I think we'll kind of as we go through the questions, really break it down into how it shows up in different ways and um, for the individual and uh, out into the systems. I think this one might be one that you have more of a relationship to because I've seen some of the posts that you've made on social media about this, but uh, it's casual racism. Hmm. So uh, for me, I'm thinking like microaggressions. Maybe uh, I'm thinking people that are being racist, maybe unintentionally, they don't realize that they're being racist. Mm. Is that what you would view as casual racism or, or what does what mm. your opinion of that look like? Yeah, I feel like Canada as a whole is is really good at casual racism. And I, I honestly see, see that like Canada kind of equating to that where, um, I mean, growing it up in Alberta, that's, I mean, I guess actually I have different experiences of of both. Um, but yeah, casual racism shows up a lot, I guess, more subtly for the people um, perpetuating it. I think for those of us experiencing it, um, especially over time, it's not so subtle. Um, but yeah, it shows up as jokes, uh, small comments, like you said, kind of internal biases that people haven't uh, had any introspection around and are, are perpetuating in different ways. Um, yeah, just by, just by ways of mistreating or kind of not engaging with certain people because of those biases. Mm -hmm. And, and I was reading on, I think it was your Facebook, uh, about how people would make jokes that you don't show up in pictures or that, um, you're going to steal something. So mm -hmm. there's these, uh, ideas, I guess, that people have in their head about what a person should look like in a picture or what behavior a person might participate in just simply based off of the color of their skin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That was a big one in Alberta, I would say. But I'm sure it happens here, too. <laughs> um, I, I'll be referencing my experiences in Alberta a lot. And that's not to say that I don't think the, those experiences happen here. Um, but since moving here, I made a very conscious decision of um, not being around people who engaged in those ways. Um, but yes, it, it 
it happens across the country and and I and although Alberta is specifically I, I would say unique uh I, they're not the only province that um yeah that has people that engage in those ways so it was just maybe a little bit more prevalent and and harder for you to separate yourself from people that were engaging in that kind of behavior yeah exactly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess we, we've been touching on this, so maybe you don't have uh, an answer for this question specifically because we'll, we'll sort of touch on it throughout. But um, what is your personal experience with racism or personal experiences? <laughs> okay, so this is why this podcast might take <laughs> five hours. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how young do we want to go back? I feel like the common um, rhetoric between people of color talking about their experiences of racism is that you know, we were, we were just learning how to walk. And that was our first memory of a race, racist experience. I remember, and every black person I, I know <laughs> remembers that the first time they were called the N-word. And for me, I was three years old and I was at a playground just outside of my house and I didn't quite know what was going on. But my older cousin, who was maybe three or four years older than me at the time, um, had was beating up this kid at the park because he had called me this this word that I didn't know what it meant, but learned pretty quickly that it was a bad word because of the the response that my cousin cousin gave. Um, yeah, and so that's like to share that story, and I think to also share, especially for Black people, that it's very common for me to share that story with other Black folks and and them to say, "Oh yeah, me too. I was three. I was four. I was five. Um, I think just speaks to the lifetime of experiences of racism that we've, that we've had. Um, it definitely got worse. I would say in maybe elementary, junior high, that's when like the jokes and the comments and like the whispers of the N word or just like, um, there was like little nicknames and variations of the N-word that people would use, like calling me like a niglet or like, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of different variations of the word. Again, I guess going back to that experience of it being, or like that term of, of casual racism, where those kids would get away with saying that in front of other people, other students, possibly teachers as well, um, because it wasn't, you know, the hard ER type of word. And so, yeah, I mean, I probably couldn't go through any year in my life where I can't recall an experience of racism. It's, it's not every day, but it's, it's pretty frequent since, since a really young age. Yeah. I mean, I think about a lot of the issues that we discuss on this podcast and, um, for me being trans, for instance, I didn't come out until I was an adult. So I didn't really deal with hatred when I was three, the way that you mm-hmm. have. That must be really challenging as a, a child to sort of have that be one of your first experiences in the mm-hmm. world is to just know that people out there can be awful. And um, it, it's so much more difficult for a child, I would imagine, to cope with that mentally than, than for an adult to be able to, to deal with those kinds of issues. Yeah. I, (laughs) I don't know how much I've, I've thought of, well, I think I've thought about it in different ways, but yeah, I don't know how much I've thought about that young and how that shaped me or what that, that did for me. But yeah, I, um, (laughs) 
in my work, one of the reasons why I focus on racial trauma as a form of support from the clients that I support um, is because of the realities of of racial trauma and complex racial trauma that like, yeah, from a very, very young age, it shapes um, your worldview. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's what guided you towards being a, a therapist that focuses on on these kinds of issues? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, a therapist that focuses on these kinds of issues for sure. Yeah, I didn't actually know that I would ever end up in like becoming an anti-racist activist of sorts in my work. Um, <laughs> but definitely my experiences in the last 10 years have, I think, pushed me in that direction. Hmm. Well, I think it's really neat too when you have the opportunity to join your activism with your work mm-hmm. uh, because it allows you to do it so much more frequently. Like for me, being able to work as a social justice advocate within my job just allows me to do more advocacy work. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the same for you, but it seems like an opportunity to reach more people and affect more change, mm-hmm. ideally. Yeah. And it works both ways, actually. One of the kind of, I mean, intersectional feminist theory looks at empowerment as a way of um, strengthening clients and, and, and folks who are coming for counseling support. So I think for myself, doing this work as well is uh, empowering and, and therapeutic in a way. Mm-hmm. So it's helping other people and also helping you at the same time. Yeah. Um, have you had a lot of experiences with microaggressions? Would you consider microaggressions and casual racism to be sort of one and the same? Yeah, microaggressions. It was interesting when I finally learned that term. It wasn't until um, one of my, I think my final years in my undergrad. So I was about 24, 25. And um, I had actually posted that that uh, thing on Facebook saying that, you know, basically naming a bunch of different microaggressions where I was at a wedding and this person, you know, like was hiding their, their purse. Cause they, they were laughing and joking that I was going to steal it. And I don't know, a bunch of other different types of microaggressive experiences and, and just being essentially like very impacted by them. And over, over time, over many years spending time with these people really was affected and didn't quite know how or why. Um, and a good friend of mine ended up sharing a link that had a, a, a YouTube video, um, like a cartoon kind of showing the mis- like the mosquito example that talks mm-hmm. about microaggressions where it's like, it's just a mosquito bite, but over time, you know, it ends up being a rash that covers your whole body or, basically, yeah, that the micro one microaggressive, microaggressive comment in isolation, you know, isn't that bad. And I put air quotes over that because it is. Um, but that many over time can really, really bring a person down. And I think that's, that's the problem with it is if you call out a person who's made a microaggressive comment, I mean, you'll, you'll experience racial gaslighting where they say, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It's just a joke. Why are you being so sensitive? Um, yeah, so it, it makes it very difficult to combat or to kind of challenge or come up against when, when folks are doing that. Do you find it challenging to navigate the intersections of privilege or lack thereof mm-hmm. related to the intersections of your skin color, sexual orientation and gender identity? Um, sometimes on the podcast, we talk about how it can be difficult to figure out why you're being discriminated against if there's 
multiple possible reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a <laughs> a a big one for a long time in terms of like it almost just becomes humorous where you're like, yeah, like which one is it today, um, or which one am I going to stand up for or fight for today? Um, for a long time, kind of before exploring and coming into like a gender fluidity for myself as a, when I identified as a cis woman, um, I always had that the hierarchy where it was like, you know, the racism because I'm black, um, versus the homophobia because I'm queer and then uh, sexism because I'm a woman and sexism was always at the bottom. And it almost like didn't even bother me by that point because of <laughs> how much racism and how much homophobia I was experiencing that I was just kind of like, this is almost a walk in the park to come up against someone who's being sexist. Um, <laughs> although that's, I don't know. I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, intersections of identity. Um, yeah, there's definitely like I guess like not that it's difficult um, to try and figure out which oppression am I experiencing, but just that sometimes you'll experience both at the same time or yeah, experiencing multiple oppressions kind of consistently. Right. So I guess the the kinds of people who are discriminating against others typically are not going, well, I'm only going to discriminate against black people. They're Mm -hmm. discriminating against women and black people Mm -hmm. and whatever else your identity might be, whether you're queer or whatever it is. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think most, most bigots just kind of like (laughs) have, have a a whole pool of things they don't like about humanity. Right. Uh, Hating people because they're different for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, like I was kind of alluding to earlier, which yeah, it, it can be, it can be interesting. I think speaking from my experience as a, as a black person, you talk about privilege and um, or being kind of like underprivileged, whatever the opposite of that word is. Um, I, I do experience, um, different privileges in different ways. And so being a light skinned black person, I'm biracial, um, identify as black because, um, I mean, for different reasons, but I'm half white. And so my skin is, is quite light. And my experience um, in the world I know is, is quite different than a person, a dark skinned black person. And so a part of kind of the work that I do and what's really important is to also be acknowledging the different privileges that I have. And especially as a cis woman at the time, just having cisgender privilege. And so it's interesting to slow down and unpack those things. It's really important, but sometimes it can be really difficult. I, I was also sort of curious, uh, I've heard uh, Trevor Noah, for instance, talk about how when he's in America, he's black, mm-hmm. but when he's in Africa, he's white. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that when you go back and visit family there? Yeah, one million percent. Uh, Trevor Noah's book was <laughs> one of the best books I ever read. I yeah. related to it so, so deeply. And we were born actually around the same time. So like, yeah, born a crime, like really, really resonated with. Um, yeah, I, (laughs) I was actually just in Zimbabwe visiting family in August and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm called Kiwa, which is white girl and I'm 
the whitest person ever <laughs> when I'm, when I'm there. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm seen as a white person. I am a white person. That's it. And when I'm here, I'm black. And especially in Alberta, I, and I actually was, was telling one of my nieces who's she's 17 that, that what we're talking about, about how, when I'm in Zimbabwe, I'm white. And when I'm in um, Canada, I'm black. And she just burst out laughing. Like she could not in her wildest dreams, imagine that I would be considered black anywhere. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting experience being um, mixed race or light, light skin. It's, it's, I think there's lots of different conversations. I think about how it's hard to find a place like you're not really accepted anywhere. Do you find that it's challenging to find a sense of belonging or a sense of identity when you are on one hand being uh, considered somewhat of an outsider because you're uh, viewed as white uh, in one country and then viewed as black in, a, in another country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of room, I think, for nuance. And it's interesting because my, my partner came to Zimbabwe with me this past uh, month to visit my family. And, um, here she's half Filipino and mixed race Asian and there she's also white. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's, it, there's not, there's not a lot of nuance where it's, you're either black or you're white. And I mean, it makes sense considering the histories of apartheid and all of that. Um, but over here too, like, I think I, definitely with the development or understanding of my identity, especially as a younger person and thinking back to like, even as young as three years old, um, having those experiences kind of telling me that I'm wrong or bad. And it's, yeah, it, it definitely messes with, um, developing a strong sense of identity or having like pride in who you are and even understanding who you are. Cause there's, there's lots of expectations around what a white person's supposed to be and, and what a black person's supposed to be. And that's sort of why you've decided to claim that title of being black when you're, when you're here, I guess, at least. Yeah. And when I'm there too, even though they just laugh at me, but, um, yeah, my experience is, is very different in, in North America. And, um, yeah, I think only like somewhat recently have I probably in the five last, like five or six years, have I realized that like my identity is as a, a black person and that I have never had a lived experience as a white person. And, um, I, I do acknowledge being mixed race and biracial. Um, but at the forefront it's, it's being black. Mm -hmm. An interesting conversation came up during some anti-oppression workshops that I took where we had talks about racism, reverse racism and prejudice based on race with the idea being that prejudice based on race is what you would actually call reverse racism because reverse racism doesn't exist and you can't be racist towards someone who is in a majority. Um, so if a white person, for instance, in Canada is being discriminated against, that wouldn't be racism. It would be prejudice based off of race. Is that your understanding as well? Did you have anything that you wanted to sort of elaborate on when it comes to those ideas? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely elaborate on the point that reverse racism is a myth. It doesn't exist. Um, 
there's an excellent comedy skit that that talks about that and essentially says, you know, if if reverse racism exists, then we'd have to go back in time and oppress white people for hundreds of years. Um, and it actually goes back to your definition in the beginning, looking at um, structural and systemic racism. Yes, a white person can experience maybe discrimination um, or prejudice, um, but they, and that might suck for them. It might hurt their feelings or make them feel bad for some time, but it doesn't systemically and societally and structurally prevent them from upward mobility in the world or any type of mobility in the world. People of color experience the world quite differently. And, and it's more than just someone calling us a mean name and it hurting our feelings. Um, but that it shows up in much bigger ways that have much bigger impacts on our lives. And do you think that that applies worldwide? Uh, I've had some interesting conversations around whether or not it's possible for white people to experience racism anywhere in the world, because on one hand, you could go to a country where you are in a minority and maybe you're discriminated against because of that. Mm. But on the other hand, uh, it was pointed out that in a lot of those countries, people who are white are still sort of revered in a way. They're they're treated um, not necessarily poorly, but um, sort of put up on a pedestal for whatever reason. And also there's that colonial aspect of white people going out and sort of conquering various aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that that uh, idea that white people can't experience racism can be uh, applied to a global scale. Well, yeah, a thousand mm -hmm. percent. Um, it's it's global. <laughs> There's exactly like you said, colonite. Like the the power of white supremacy is universal. It's not um, just in places where there's a majority of white people. And how do you think the conversation around Black Lives Matter has changed the conversation around racism as a whole in the last few years? Um, I mean, Black Lives Matter has been around, I suppose, at this point more than a few years, but uh, it seems like there's been, maybe in the last five years that, that you've been identifying as Black, there's been a lot of conversations around Black Lives Matter and uh, why that needs to exist and why black people specifically need to be uh, brought to the forefront of our attention. Yeah. I mean, black lives matter, I believe started in, I want to say 2013, but it might even be earlier than that. And it was Trayvon Martin's mother who's, who started it with a group of other moms um, because of their boys, like young children being killed by the police. And for whatever reason, I look forward to the research cut and like the, the, the theories and stuff that will come out. But for whatever reason in 2020, when George Floyd was killed in the world watch that happen, the black lives matter conversation and movement shifted very largely. And as we know, movements, uh, shift and they, they happen over time. It, it's not, um, one single event. Um, but yeah, that, that shift definitely changed 
I would say it changed how people were listening and how people were responding and um, viewing Black Lives Matter and maybe reflecting on, yeah, like it, it changed, it, it shifted how people reflected on their pers- participation in racism and, and looking at structural and systemic racism. And yeah, it's been such an interesting experience the last couple of years where, I mean, for the first like two months, three months after George Floyd died, everybody and their dog was talking about Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, and then it went back to, it went back to, um, you know, 2013 or, or whatever year that BLM started where people aren't really talking about it anymore in terms of like the majority of people. Building on the top or the, the conversation around Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. do you, I guess to start with, do you support defunding the police? <laughs> yes. Okay. I support abolishing the police. <laughs> abolishing the police. Okay. Cause that was a distinction that I, I thought um, mm-hmm. we should talk about is there are, seem to be a lot of misconceptions around what people are asking for when they say defund the police. So abolishing mm-hmm. the police, I think is quite clear. Just get rid of the police completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but defunding the police can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it does mean abolish the police. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, it means let's just take a little bit of money away from the police and redirect it towards mental health supports, for instance. Yeah. Um, what what are some sort of misconceptions that you're noticing around this conversation? Well, I think like one of the biggest misconceptions around maybe folks who are against defunding the police is that everyone will just start murdering each other and robbing from everyone's homes and that it'll just turn into total chaos, which is like, I guess, kind of like a, a fear mongering myth that like perpetuates this like dependence or societal like need for for police um yeah defunding like you were saying it 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 can look like not raising their budget by like millions of dollars in a year and redistributing that money um to social workers and mental health support especially when we look at the amount of deaths that have been caused even in this last year by police officers um you know, murdering people of color who are going through mental health crisis. Um, and that's not only like, that's across Canada. There's like four cases I'm thinking off the top of my head that people were murdered when they should have been supported, um, by mental health and social work, uh, workers, not police officers. So when I mean, I guess just to address that uh, extreme example that always comes up around, uh, you know, what's going to happen to the serial killers if we abolish the police? Mm-hmm. Is the idea that the police are causing more harm than those people might be causing, or is there another way that you would approach? Yeah, I, I don't know like if it's that, that simple. Um, I don't know the stats of of like what homicides are. I think they are pretty high, um, but you know, when I think when we're looking at the harm that the police force causes, I mean, I don't know that we can, yeah, I I think it's, it's something to consider. And even just the historical (laughs) reasons as to why the RCMP was created in the first place, it's, it's a racist institution. Like it's literally founded in racism. 
And so, you know, how are, how are you going to readjust or reframe those systems that are quite literally rooted in, in that type of oppression? Right. So there might need to be a replacement system of some kind, but it, it's just not worth it trying to reform a system that is rooted in racism and seemingly can never be separated from that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you've shared a bit about your journey to unlearn white supremacist ideologies that mm-hmm. were instilled in you through your uh, therapist education and employment. Can you explain a little bit about what that looks like? Um, so I am a registered clinical counselor, um, and did, did my master's in counseling and, um, counseling kind of similar to what we were talking about just in, I guess, as an institution, um, and, and the histories of, of how it was created and ways, the ways it was used to oppress people of, of color, um, is something that's not openly addressed in graduate studies they like kind of hint at the fact that (laughs) most of the theories like most of the original theories in in counseling um were curated by white cis men and so i mean that's like the most obvious but when we look at and actually this kind of intersects with um lgbtq2ia plus uh communities is mental health was you were um, I guess queer people were pathologized. And so um, being gay or uh, lesbian, I don't know that they use queer back in the day uh, in that way, but was, was seen as a, um, a pathological psychological disorder and was used to oppress um, those communities. And, you know, we've seen that as well with histories of, of people of color. And that also is not acknowledged in my graduate studies or in graduate studies across Canada. And so, yeah, it was really difficult for me that those kind of more obvious things weren't mentioned, but that also we didn't talk about racism at all. Like the word racism was not uttered in my graduate learning. They would say things like bias, uh, not even racial bias, just like ask people to unpack their bias. Um, and that was really difficult for me. And it, it upholds us, it upholds white supremacy and it definitely caters to white fragility and centers whiteness. <laughs> when you're teaching a bunch of people, you know, counseling theory and counseling intervention, but never talking about racism and never talking about the impacts of racism on people and mental health. Was, yeah, I was going to mention that too, because it seems like there would be a lot of mental health issues associated with being discriminated against in whatever way. So to just write that off as unpacking bias seems uh, detrimental to uh, the, the work of trying to help someone through whatever it is that they're struggling with. Yeah, like it's, to me, it's unethical. Like you're not, you're not addressing it and you're teaching, teaching counselors how to go out and be the world, be in the world and and support people, but never addressing it directly. Like it being experiences of racism and, and yeah, challenging white supremacy. 
So yeah, I, I think there was definitely like a lot of unlearning, a lot of like, yeah, like I said, centering and kind of catering to white fragility. And, um, I guess like figuring out how to kind of decolonize by learning. And so that's, uh, I guess, a big focus of your work is trying to repair that in some ways by offering the services that are lacking or, or presenting the services through a lens that was lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you're also a counselor with UBC's Black Caucus, working on a pilot project for uh, Black mental wellness. So can you maybe explain uh, what that work looks like? Yeah, so the Black Caucus has done a lot of really great work in the last year and a half, maybe two years now, um, advocating for um, counseling support for their Black students um, at the university. So, so yeah, the pilot project started out just asking the university for some... Actually, I think what happened is they had extra uh, funding that year, um, maybe with EDI or through the Black Caucus. I'm not sure exactly where the funding came from, but they had a little extra um, because of the pandemic. Less programs were offered. And so by the end of the year, they had a bit of extra money. And so they advocated to have it be directed to go towards providing students um, free counseling. And not only free counseling, but free counseling from Black therapists, because that's um, a very unique need. Um, I would say, especially in this city, but across Canada, for sure, um, to have a therapist that's, that's black, if, if you're a black person, um, and, and the importance of that. And I think the, the privilege that a lot of other folks, especially white folks don't quite understand that, that they, they have kind of, um, don't have to worry about finding a white therapist or a therapist that, that looks like them. Um, yeah, so the they did the the pilot project and it went really well and now they've just been kind of advocating to have a second round. Amazing. And do you find that people struggle like I, it's so difficult just to find any therapist in my experience. It mm-hmm. it took me quite a while to find someone that I that I could work with and uh I imagine that's compounded when you're part of a well, I know it's compounded when you're part of a marginalized group mm-hmm. and you're trying to seek out therapy f- that relates to that in some way. Um, Are there enough black therapists coming out of school to fill the need or is there still um, something lacking there? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Probably not. Uh, I don't know the, the numbers um, of, of black therapists. I mean, in my program, I think there was two of us, so it's likely um, pretty small. Um, there, I mean, I have noticed over, like, since I began practicing in, in, in my independent practice in 2020, um, I mean, I work with, with a number of, of black therapists and I think, I, I mean, I haven't counted, but there's maybe 20 of us, which is actually pretty great. Um, but yeah, I would imagine, I think I've definitely thought a lot about ways to work with the university to, I mean, just from my own experience, it's very hard to get into a master's program. Um, there's, there's just a lot of barriers. And when we look at like financial dif- differences um, for black folks, just having access and means to, to do graduate um, education, 
there's, yeah, I, 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 I wish that there was more attention put into bringing black students into these types of things, uh, whether it be mental health or medical health or yeah, just healthcare in general. Yeah, that's been uh, something that's really challenging in basically all of the EDI work that I've been doing is those systemic barriers prevent you from being able to have people who are, uh, there's that old trope, like uh, I pointed out, for instance, that all of the staff in Coquitlam's council, or not all of them, but most of them are, are white. Mm. Uh, most of them are men. And just pointed it out, I didn't say something needs to change. I didn't you know, give any ideas of what needed to change. But people started attacking me just for pointing it out, mm. saying, are you claiming that they're not the most qualified candidates? And it, it ends up being a very tricky conversation because they might be very qualified. They probably are very qualified. But part of the problem is that if you've got these systemic barriers that are affecting people from being able to get into school to become qualified to take on those positions, you're never going to end up solving the problem. It's just going to get compounded. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know if there's a question in here anywhere, <laughs> but um, is that an issue that you've been noticing, I guess? And mm -hmm. uh, do you see some path forward for remedying that? Yeah, I mean, I mean I've had different pipe dreams around paths forward. I think I do what I can to support, um, any students that are, are, or yeah, undergrad students that are interested in, in talking to me and asking questions about how to, how to get into grad school or how, what, what, what I did, what my story and journey was. Um, but yeah, I definitely think the university should be doing a lot more and taking into consideration how, how difficult it is. Um, exactly like you said, like white people just have less barriers and and uh, less obstacles and less experiences of oppression. I mean, I just think to, to politics, for instance, where uh, if you want to get someone who is a woman to run, you have to ask them seven times, whereas you could just ask a man once mm -hmm. and he'll say, sure, I'll do it. Um, there's that sort of confidence aspect. But then every time you add another level of marginalization, you end up creating we're finding more and more barriers mm. to access. Obviously, we need to break down those barriers in order to uh, create that kind of systemic change. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you need to have the representation to show people that they can get there, mm. which is it's almost like a chicken and egg type of mm -hmm. scenario. Like, how do you fix that? Right. Yeah. I mean, program like the Black Caucus, the, this pilot project that they're they're working on, is a small step towards kind of fixing that where we're giving people counseling support to be able to get through their, their schooling, because it is that much more difficult. Um, especially at, at universities like, like UBC that are PWIs, like predominantly white institutions, being a person of color at a, 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 an institution like that is very, very difficult. Um, whether you're a student or a staff member or faculty. And so, yeah, I'm really glad that the pilot project is doing round two uh, this month and we'll be providing more counseling support and access, I guess, free counseling with uh, Black therapists. Amazing. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that that's going so strongly and that it, it seems to be 
creating a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so building on that a little bit, how do you think that we as a society and as individuals can unlearn the racism that we have been taught and that we've internalized and that we may not even be aware of? Mm. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I feel like your question goes back and forth maybe between two two different people's experiences. And so from the things that I've internalized, you know, I've had to do a lot of, a lot of counseling work and a lot of, um, individual work to externalize myself from, uh, from the the problem that is racism and, uh, a lot of, a lot of self-care and a lot of work around rebuilding, my sense of self and just my, my strength and understanding that I'm a good person. Um, not despite my blackness, but because of my blackness. Um, and I think, you know, for, for some of the other points of your question in terms of kind of what folks can do to unlearn their biases or unlearn, I guess the way they, they show up in the world. Um, I mean, I imagine it would actually take as much work as I have had to put um, for myself to kind of rebuild myself and my sense of self where it's exactly that. It, it takes an extreme amount of work um, and ex- an extreme amount of humility um, as a white person to say that I am a person that's perpetuating this system that has oppressed um, many, many people. Yeah. It's a lot of introspection and it's, it's honestly just a lot of work. And so people have to be willing to put in the work. When we're talking about work, we're talking about education, therapy. Those seemed like the two big pieces that stood out. Mm -hmm. Are there some other aspects of what that work looks like? Yeah. I mean, therapy in itself looks at like or challenges a person to have introspection. Um, I think education for sure. Those like books that you can read or, or, um, you know, advocates that advocates that you can follow and, and listen to their, to their work, um, on, on learning or kind of being how to be an anti-racist. Um, and I think like challenging, challenging others. So starting, small, starting with family and friends. And if you see someone engaging in microaggressions or, um, overt racist behavior, you know, you're the silence is violence is like a, a pretty real thing for me. Um, so I'm talking to a lot of people in my life because of that, where I would call out racism and then the ripple around the room of, of complete silence. And so that to me kind of just showed, well, I guess, you know, I can't be engaging with any of you because your silence tells me that you're okay with this happening. So you need the genuine allyship as opposed to the maybe performative allyship. Or, yeah. Or yeah. just silence completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like people, people are afraid of disrupting the status quo. And there's like this, this idea that if, if you do, you know, you're going to be on the outside or you're going to, I don't even know, like not survive or something. Um, but yeah, it has to be done. And do you think that, 
um, it needs to be a, a sort of a call out or more of a call in? Yeah, I definitely think more of a call in. I mean, I, I will call out over overt racist behavior probably all day, every day. But yeah, if we're going to see like long lasting change, I think being able to call each other in and ha- hold space for maybe trusting that people are learning and wanting and willing to change, um, that that can likely have more longevity. Right. And I guess it probably depends on the situation as well. If, mm-hmm. if there's the idea that an individual has maybe said something in a room full of people that is deeply offensive, it might be more appropriate to call that out to express to the entire room, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. But if uh, it's a person expressing something to you uh, specifically, maybe it's a, a chance to call them in so that uh, they're more receptive to hearing what you have to say as opposed to feeling automatically defensive for whatever reason. Yeah, for sure. Like when I think about the like 20 people that I don't talk to anymore in Alberta, I didn't have the capacity anymore. Like I was, I was done. So I, you know, called, called the few out that needed to be, and then just kind of took off and stopped talking to everyone. And looking back on that, and I actually had an experience over the weekend where one of these people came from Alberta to, to visit she didn't have much of a clue about why I didn't to this day still want to be in the same room as her, didn't feel safe um, being in the same room as her. And so it did make me think about how maybe if I had the capacity to call her in at that point and talk to her about the six years of microaggressions that she had enacted on me, that maybe she would have had at least more of an understanding about her, her actions um, and, and potentially, I mean, who knows, but hopefully been able to, to reflect on that in a way that maybe she would consider changing her behavior. Um, but it is kind of sad to think that since I left her life, nothing's changed. Like she hasn't had any sort of insight into into her behavior. Uh, yeah, that's something that uh, has come up for me recently, uh, just in, in how I engage with people around being trans. Mm-hmm. I, I don't call people in very often anymore because it's so exhausting to try to do that continuously. I feel like that's when you really need allies to step in mm-hmm. and do the calling in because mm-hmm. they have the capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people who deal with all of these microaggressions, all of the hatred, all, like all, all of that, it just gets so overwhelming that you kind of shut down and you, you can't personally deal with it. So you need those allies to step up. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that's exactly like the layers of work that we're kind of breaking down right now that it's, yeah, if you, if you call yourself an ally, how are you actively showing up as an ally? And that's a very good example of, I'm going to take on the emotional labor that it takes to call a person in and educate them and inform them that they're enacting harm on a person and, and carry that for the person who's experienced the harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that would be a, would be, be a better world if, if we had more allies doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything we're getting sort of close to the end of, of the questions? So is there anything that we 
haven't touched on yet that you feel you really want to mention? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you kind of said at the beginning of the of the podcast that the topic of racism encompasses so many things. And so it's interesting to slow it down and answer some of these questions with you and just think about the impacts and the experiences and the potential of, I guess, missed opportunities or yeah, wishing, wishing for better allyship from, from different friends in my community and yeah, I guess going out into like the larger systemic and institutional things and just thinking it's a lot, it's a lot to think about. Um, I mean, there's nothing really that's, that's standing out. I think, I think it's, it's interesting to, to say out loud that, um, that my experiences of racism have been lifelong like I, I think I know that, and I think I've said that in different ways, but it's it's it is weird to say it out loud and think about the different ways that that I've been impacted by that. Like thinking, there's so many things that are coming to mind in terms of like even just family members not speaking to me or not wanting to engage with me. My brother and I, when my mom brought it, brought us home from Zimbabwe, you know, and and having literal like aunts and uncles not communicate with us because we were N words that they didn't like they, you know? Wow. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to slow it down and like really think about how every facet of my life from family, quote unquote friends and like, teachers and just, yeah, every facet of, of my life. And I, I don't, I know that I'm not alone in, in these experiences. Um, yeah, racism is, is really real, really, really real. Um, actually one, one thing that I didn't talk about and I, I don't know if, um, I don't even know like how to, or how much to get into it, but I'm actually supporting a client right now who is experiencing very violent and very overt racism at their school. And they're in grade eight or nine, I think. And, um, yeah, like to the point where she'll walk down the hall and kids will, um, make like mimic monkey sounds and actions around her and call her the n-word and like cough and say it and just like really really violent stuff um and you know teachers have witnessed this and and their response is to ask her the person experiencing this if um if she's okay and in front of everyone as if she's gonna say that she's not (laughs) right um and putting the burden and the onus on her to say no i'm not okay this is not okay Um, yeah, that's been something I've been trying to figure out and, um, I don't think I'll get to it this year, but when I can find the energy, I think anti-racist work in the schools is horrendous. Like it's, it's terrible. That's Um, really disheartening to hear when you think about how, how much this, the conversations have sort of shifted towards talking about racism, but 
is it having an impact when you when you hear about something like that? It, it makes you question whether we're, we're moving in the right direction almost. Yeah, it's such an interesting, <laughs> the last like six years have been so interesting because another thing not to take up too much more time, but another thing that I'm thinking of is 2016 um, had an incredible shift and impact on North, I would say maybe globally, but definitely um, North American society. And so Trump being elected, um, I was seeing like firsthand what, what that meant for non-majority people and, and people with intersecting identities. And, um, yeah, he, you know, he essentially gave the, gave the go ahead for the Nazis to come barreling out of their houses and doors and essentially like be directly attacking people. And, um, so when we think about that happening in 2016 and how much of a ripple and how much of a profound impact that had on our society, um, and then coming into 2020 there, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Like so, so many things have happened over the last six years, um, in North America that are, I mean, yeah, when you look at the States have, have created quite a divide. Um, you know, but I, I remember like, I think it was, I guess it was 2020. So it was almost like the 20, those two things kind of colliding. My brother was living in Vancouver and he ended up being stalked and harassed by a white supremacist who like threatened him and said he was going to show up at a black lives matter, um, protest with a gun and like very, very overt, um, racial harassment that like was very clearly from some of the things that Trump had said. And so I think some of the rhetoric was like, oh, that stuff happens in the States. Like it doesn't affect us here, but it definitely does. Yeah. I, I saw a huge increase in, in the level of hate that was being spewed, at least online. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, those kinds of sentiments are always going to work their way into the, the real world because you know, social media doesn't exist in a vacuum, but mm -hmm. um, that's incredibly scary to hear about those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Well, and even like looking at Elon Musk and Twitter right now, like all I've, all I've seen is articles about the N-word being, I don't know, whatever, like 500, like used 500% more than it used to be or whatever, mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, these things are very, very real and impact real everyday people. It's, it's like Trump's election. It just makes people feel emboldened to... exactly to spew that crap. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scary, scary, <laughs> very scary. Yeah. Well, on that depressing note, <laughs> um, what advice would you give to our listeners who are maybe looking for ways that they can, um, champion anti-oppression, anti-racism? I know that a lot of people are looking for ways that they can make a difference, but uh, also recognizing that you can't just go into the world and do whatever you want and, mm. and create change that way. Um, it has to be led by the people who 
know what it's like to experience racism. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you have some advice for, for people who are, who are looking to try to make a positive impact? I think kind of, kind of like you were saying, I guess, listening, I think is a very powerful tool. So if, if you have people in your life who are not white or experience um, and or um, experience racism to listen to them and maybe hold space for them to, to, to talk about those experiences. I think it's hard for people to hear how hard it is or hear about people experiencing negative and difficult things. Um, but I think, I guess that's probably like the counselor in me that (laughs) listening, listening to people, um, holds, holds a lot of power. Um, I think like we said, just the allyship. And so if, if you have the capacity and if you call yourself an ally, what does that mean in, in action? What are you doing in action? And so maybe standing up for people in your community or, going to rallies or protests or donating to, um, agencies or organizations that are, um, promoting anti-racist initiatives. Yeah. I don't know. It's a big question. I think there's, there's lots of different things that people can do, but I think like just having humility and like really genuinely wanting to listen and to learn can, can have a really big impact on, on how people engage. In the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from my personal experience, uh, I have acknowledged that uh, I've internalized a lot of racist teachings throughout my life, and that that is going to make me uh, racist in some ways, mm-hmm. just inherently. And I think everyone is racist in, in some way. I mean, you correct me if, if you view things differently, but mm-hmm. um, I think that's a difficult thing for people to come to terms with. Mm. And I've tried to have conversations with uh, typically older generations about this idea that they've internalized concepts that are wrong and that they need to unlearn. Mm. And there's this um, sort of defensive response. Oh, I'm not racist or uh, I've never done a racist thing in my life or (laughs) something on those lines. And I think that uh, what you're saying about making sure that you have that humility and that you're listening to other people and actively working through therapy, through education to unlearn mm. what it is that you've been taught is, uh, is really valuable. Mm-hmm. And like, for me, a big sign that I need to slow down and, and have some introspection and sit with, with what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking before I'm responding to something is, is if I feel immediately defensive. And so yeah. <laughs> Again, through therapy, kind of understanding what some of those signs are and, and what some of those things are. If, if I'm immediately defensive and have, have, um, have some sort of response and say, oh, I'm not this, then, you know, likely there's some, some stuff to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much. I know that these conversations aren't easy, so I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, to share your perspectives and uh, so this has been my guest, uh, Tokomoyo. Uh, thank you again for joining. This has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Berling, and I'll see you again in two weeks. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Berling, brought to you by The Flag Shop 
and inspired by a social justice coloring book.